0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George.
1: Each year, Beeson Divinity School sponsors a special award, the John Pollock Award for Christian Biography. Uh, which honors um, Mr. John Pollock, a wonderful biographer in Great Britain. And and we choose a volume of biography, Christian biography, that reflects a person who's had a real impact on the life of uh, Christianity. And this year's winner is Francis Schaeffer and the Shaping of Evangelical America by Dr. Barry Hankins. And Barry is with me here today at Beeson, and we're talking about his book. And welcome to Beeson Divinity School. Thank you. It's good to be here. Tell me a little bit about uh, what led you to write about Francis Schaeffer and who in the world was Francis Schaeffer. Well, um, when
0: historians talk about events, we, we often uh, talk about immediate causes and real causes. And I have an immediate cause for writing this book and a real cause. Uh, the real cause is that like a lot of people um, who have become Christian scholars, I read Schaeffer as a young Person when I was in my early 20s. And uh, probably more than anyone else that I read, uh, reading Schaefer's books made me take seriously the world of ideas and to think about how uh, being a Christian might intersect with intellectual life. And so it was a real shaping experience. And this story I've heard many, many times from other people who had a very similar experience. Reading Schaefer turned them on to, again, the world of ideas. And so it was a real shaping influence uh, on my life, and so to, to write a biography of that was in some ways uh, natural and something I would wanted to to do. But there was an immediate cause also, and that is uh, about five years ago a friend of mine, Darrell Hart, was editing a biographical series for a different publisher and actually sent me an email and asked me if I wanted to write the volume on Francis Schaeffer. And uh, I jumped at the opportunity and um, and began to write the book. And uh, as it turned out, the book that I wrote, uh, the, the publisher Daryl worked with, didn't didn't like it. <laughs> Actually, I, they thought I was. I went through two rounds of of negotiating with them about some of the ways I was interpreting Schaefer. And this particular press had a very um, close relationship with Schaefer, and they were somewhat protective, overprotective. Uh, of his of his reputation, and so I finally just decided I, I just could not publish the book with that publisher and uh, so i I got out of the contract, and uh, Erdman 's wanted the book uh, when i when I was free from the other contract I, I turned to erdman 's and they were very enthusiastic about taking it up and This is all rather interesting to me because. Most people who've read the book see it as a fairly sympathetic interpretation of Francis Schaeffer. It's a critical biography, but I, you know, I'm very sympathetic. I think his contribution was was very significant in evangelical history. So
1: I want you to say a little more about who he was, yeah. because we have a whole generation of people who have never heard of him, believe it or not. But let me mention that your book has been published in the Library of Religious Biography, which is a wonderful series on biography published by Erdman, some great uh, volumes that have been there and yours is included in that volume and you've written other biographies you've written a volume on j frank norris you called it god's rascal which i think is a wonderful title for that uh whatever he was uh in baptist life Uh, you've also written about the southern baptist convention about fundamentalism about evangelicalism so you're sort of swimming here in a stream that you're pretty familiar with aren't you yes I um
0: I I spend most of my time, you know, researching and writing about 20th century evangelicals and fundamentalists. So Schaefer, I think um I I would argue and I think I don't think I'm in any way um unusual in this respect. I think Schaefer was probably arguably the second most important evangelical in the second half of the 20th century. I think Billy Graham was probably the most significant and I think Schaefer was probably second. Schaefer's a fascinating figure. Um started out as a is a um uh... Serious fundamentalist. And I, you know, and, and, you know, historians that work on fundamentalists and evangelicals, you know, we don't throw the word around for just people we don't like or people who are different from us. I mean, he was a serious fundamentalist. He was a militant defender of the faith. Um, he was a separatist, believing that you should separate from not only liberal Protestants, but from anybody who wouldn't separate from liberal Protestants. So he was a serious separatist fundamentalist from his conversion in the 1929, 1930 up through about 1950. In the 50s, he and his wife, Edith, founded a, uh, a retreat center in Switzerland called Labri, and uh, we can talk more about that in a moment. But in in conjunction with having young people come and stay at brie Schaefer began to think deeply about how the Christian faith related to all the things he'd been trying to separate from for about two decades, almost three decades. And in particular, he was meeting young people in Europe – who had no Christian faith, they had been introduced and perhaps even adopted existential atheistic sorts of worldviews, and Schaefer was challenged to try and come up with an apologetic of the Christian faith that made sense in the context of modern ideas and so he began to talk, and those talks led to lectures. He became fairly well known across certain evangel- in certain evangelical arenas and started coming back in the mid-60s to the United States and giving lectures on college campuses. Those lectures were taped, transcribed. They became books. The first three books became known as his trilogy, and those books became extremely influential amongst American evangelicals because he was bringing uh, a message of cultural and intellectual engagement from a Christian perspective into an evangelical world in the United States in the 1960s that, as I like to put it, still had a hangover from separatist fundamentalism. And so he was talking to kids who had been told all the time they were growing up, stay as far away from the secular world as you can. And he was telling those kids, no, engage the secular world. Take the Christian gospel there and have something intelligent and compelling to say about the Christian faith. His books took off. They sold like crazy. He lectured all over American college campuses and many of those people uh, that heard his lectures went on to become uh, scholars themselves and, and continue in this sort of
1: Work. Well, I would include myself in that number. I, I met Francis Schaefer at Covenant College in about the mid-1960s when he was there giving a series of lectures. And as you yourself, I was intrigued by him. I read his stuff. Uh, he taught me how to think critically and how to think about art and literature and music and all these things that I knew were out there but somehow had not been instilled into me as part and parcel of a Christian life and worldview, as we said back then. Uh, so uh, his influence has really been widespread. Uh, you mentioned Labrie, and when most people think of Schaefer, if they know anything about him, it's probably Labrie. That's a French word that means shelter. So uh, talk a little bit about Labrie and Schaefer's trajectory in his life and what it was and what it came to mean. Schaefer went to went to uh, Europe in, in
0: 1947, and then moved there in 1948. Schaefer, his wife Edith, and their three daughters later on he would have a son as well that we can talk about who's quite an interesting person Uh, Schaefer actually went to Europe as a fundamentalist missionary uh, with um, a group called the International Council of Christian Churches which was founded as the American Council of Christian Churches the ACCC it was founded by Carl McIntyre who is one of the most notorious separatist fundamentalists of the 20th century and Schaefer basically went to Europe to try and spread fundamentalist Christianity in a post-World War II world. It's almost like a, I like to call it, he was uh, the, the McIntyre and Schaeffer and the others associated with him were involved in a kind of theological martial plan. Uh, they thought that they could get in on the ground floor of maybe spreading the gospel in the midst of a war-torn, war-ravaged sort of Europe. So he went there in 1948, but by 1950, Schaeffer had wearied of McIntyre's and fundamentalism's intense interest in separating from other Christians and McIntyre was, no, was was notorious for attacking other Christians because they weren't pure enough in their faith and over time Schaefer began to feel like <clears throat> something was missing in this message and that, that was the love of God and the love of Christ for, for all people and at about that same time that he was <clears throat> going through this split with McIntyre uh, Schaefer and his wife Edith began to invite English schoolgirls into their home and uh, these were uh, boarding school girls from wealthy uh, English families that went to Switzerland in the winter uh, to study and ski and they often would do all their coursework in the morning and ski all afternoon and somehow they met up with the Schafers, and the Schaeffers started uh, inviting them over to their house and This is when Schaefer was was struck by the fact that whereas in America he could pretty much assume that anyone he would talk to would have a kind of basic knowledge of the Christian faith, and so it was an attempt to turn people away from their sinful ways and turn them toward Christ before he could ever get to that point with these English schoolgirls he had to basically explain you know what the gospel was and and uh, who Christ was and where this fit in with these sorts of things and so Edith especially and she's a tremendously influential in this whole story Edith began to to dream of of a place where young people could come and stay and uh, I think Edith had a gift for the ancient practice of Christian hospitality, and uh, and Schaefer had a gift for arguing with people, <laughs> and so in, in 1955, Edith was able to arrange for the Schaefer family to purchase a chalet in the in the town of Waymo, Switzerland, and um, in the Swiss Alps and they opened the chalet as le brie and just kind of did minimal sort of really the, the, their philosophy was to not really do advertising but just have the word of mouth spread uh, uh that the fact that this this place had opened and their daughters by this time were were entering college age and so their daughters knew people would bring bring uh, friends home from college and and the word began to get around first in Europe and then in America a few years later that there was this place in the Swiss Alps where young people could go and stay for a couple dollars a week and uh, and talk about big ideas and about life. And uh, from that point on, Labrie just took off until by the early 60s, American students were starting to make treks to Labrie uh uh, one of those who would come in the later 60s and became uh, well known in his own right as a scholar Oz Guinness said that over time Le Brie became one of the European
1: stations of the cross it was almost like a <laughs> pilgrimage site for young evangelical Christians yeah go and get some good cheese fondue and talk about philosophy and Zen Buddhism and whatever else exactly. and you can see how it, mit, it met the moment in, in some ways uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the spirituality of Labrie I'm interested in the fact that the Shaffers, as you say, didn't really do fundraising. They kind of depended on the Lord to send them the money to keep the operation going. And especially Edith seems to have had, but maybe Francis, too, this, this sort of uh, belief in God answering prayer about the most intimate details of life. And say a little bit about the, the that ethos that yeah. seemed to have prevailed at Brie and meant a lot to the people who went there, I guess. Well, the
0: first thing to say about it is it comes largely from Edith. Uh, um, uh, Edith grew up uh, in a, uh, a missionary family that had spent time in the China Inland Mission, and the China Inland Mission, you know, traces its history back and uh, to to a, a, a spiritual movement that that very much emphasized uh, just petitioning God for all of one's needs, and so she she grew up with this Christian ethos, and in um, began to kind of not institutionalize it but began to incorporate it into the labrie mentality so that uh as you said when they when they needed funds when they needed uh supplies uh when they needed people to come to labria that's the first thing they didn't know if anyone would come uh Edith would pray about it and believe that that God would would supply all of those um all of those needs and I, I think Francis was was always kind of being pulled along by Edith in this in this respect because uh, he was a much more uh, kind of intellectually oriented sort of person, whereas Edith was much more oriented toward a deep spirituality. It's not to say that Francis wasn't deeply spiritual; he was, but but uh, she she was much more that way than he was.
1: Yeah. And on Sunday mornings, you talk about their having worship in their little uh, chalet and. Mm-hmm. Just sometimes the family or the guests who were there would come, and Francis would preach, and they kind of carried on a little church life. Yeah,
0: at first, yeah, church life was very important, and that was very important for both of them. And at first, they would have services in Le Brie itself. Eventually, they built a chapel there. And um, a, a typical weekend at Le Brie would be something like on a Saturday evening, everyone would gather in the uh, commons room of the of the chalet of the main chalet, and Schaefer would sit on a on a chair that was kind of carved out of an old barrel and so he would be somewhat elevated and most of the young people would sit either on the floor or the furniture around the edge of the room and and it was just kind of a free-flowing conversation. Schaefer would ask if anyone had a question. And if no one did, he would prod them along until somebody asked a question. And someone would ask a 30-second question, and Schaefer would follow with a 30-minute answer. And he would go on, and basically he was you know, uh, developing. At the same time, he was spreading a certain way he had, a certain method he had for apologetics. He was also developing at the same time. and And so that would go on until midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, and then they would they would break up, and Schaeffer would routinely then retreat to his bedroom and finish his sermon. And the next morning, they would everyone would go to the chapel over time after they had built the chapel. And in the chapel, they have a serious worship service uh, following a kind of uh, reformed Presbyterian model, but with Bach chorale. And some of the people that came to visit Labrie were, in fact, accomplished uh, uh, artists, musicians. There was one in particular <clears throat> who was a, an opera singer, very accomplished professional opera singer who was converted and started coming to La Brie. and so she would bring a couple of her friends and they would do some Bach chorale and you know it could be quite quite moving uh in that respect and then Schaefer would preach and interestingly uh over time he adopted the Swiss dress of of the uh lederhosen and the um and the knee breeches or the knickers I guess they call them and uh but on Sunday mornings he would you know he would change into a a, a suit and a yeah. preacher or, or,
1: you know, when i met preacher, him he so. was wearing this swiss garb and that's yes. one of the things i most remember about him um, not so much what he said but at that moment how he looked yeah. it mm-hmm. was it was all part of the package uh, and
0: and that experience that you mentioned uh, was was impressive to many many people the very first thing to look at that he was so unusual to come, especially when he started coming back to america and giving lectures in 1964 and 1965 again the evangelical world at that time was pretty buttoned down, uh pretty straight laced and here comes this guy uh he's wearing you know the the later hose and the and the knickers and he's got long hair and a long goatee and uh kind of looks like some combination of a Swiss Alps climber and a hippie, and he's talking about uh, Christ and Aquinas and uh, Jesus and Kierkegaard and all of these sorts of things, and it was just it just uh, blew people away yeah. in, in the mid-60s. Yeah.
1: Now, we're in the 60s, and his books are beginning to be published. Uh, the God Who Is There, He Is There and He Is Not Silent, Escape from Reason, those are three that I read at that time and meant a lot to me, and he wrote others. If you could say uh, in just a brief way, what was he about as a philosopher theologian apologist what what was he trying to say in those books and and why did it connect to people seemingly in such a deep way yeah. is, is Schaefer is interesting in that uh he's he's one because he was not a
0: trained you know scholar he didn't know deeply a lot of the intellectual figures he talked about. But he somehow kind of got the big picture sort of right. And the big picture for Schaeffer was that Western civilization had moved from a sort of uh, Christian worldview into uh, a secular and even atheistic sort of worldview. It had lost its its, uh, Christian and moral bearings over time. And in some of his books, he tried to sketch out how that had happened. And um, when he sketched it out, he got he didn't necessarily get the details correct um, but his his sketch went something like uh, starting with Aquinas <laughs> uh, there was a separation between faith and reason. Now, I just have to say that any Aquinas scholar, anyone who reads Aquinas seriously doesn't really like what Schaeffer has to say about Aquinas because uh, scholars of Aquinas see Qu- See, you know, the great medieval uh, scholar Aquinas actually integrating rationality and spirituality, theology and, and reason quite well. But somehow Schaeffer uh, picked up this idea that, that Aquinas was actually separating the two. And then he goes from there to the Renaissance and the Reformation, then to 19th century thinker Soren Kierkegaard, and eventually to 20th century thinkers, thinkers like Camus and Sartre, and also in a theological sense, Karl Barth. And the big picture that he ends up Painting is that uh, there is has been this divorce between faith and reason, and so and and this big picture I mean is essentially I think I'm I'm very sympathetic with the big picture he ends up with because he ends up with a modern world that puts uh, reasonable knowledge into one category and uh, faith and theology into another category, and then privileges the reasonable knowledge because it's knowledge, and says that what's over on the other side is just belief, and so it's somehow um, secondary. And then Schaeffer said what, what the modern world has said you have to almost leave reason behind and make this, and this is where he brought Kierkegaard into it. And I must say again, as with the Aquinas scholars, Kierkegaard scholars, one of my friends at Baylor is is one of the most significant Kierkegaard scholars of our time, and Stephen Evans. And uh, Stephen just uh, almost goes ballistic when we talk about what Schaefer had to say about Kierkegaard. But he he utilized perhaps in, in an unfortunate way Kierkegaard's idea of a leap of faith. And Schaefer said that what the modern world was saying. Was that you couldn't reason you couldn't get from reason to to faith you had to make this sort of existential leap because the two were in separate categories now, mm-hmm. and again that there's something compelling about that argument to the extent that I think modern the modern project has attempted to reduce matters of faith to something that is less important than matters of knowledge and has Privileged science over theology uh, as if one were real knowledge and the other was not. And I think Schaefer was onto something uh, yeah. with that argument.
1: Now, coming out of the separatist fundamentalist's background, as he did, he was a, a friend of McIntyre, but he was also in some ways a disciple of J. Crescent Machen. Mm-hmm. And there's this big divide between should Christians be involved with society? Should they completely separate? Where do you draw the line? Uh, McIntyre had a pretty full engagement. I mean, yeah. in a sense, I mean he, you couldn't accuse him, accuse him of being a kind of closet fundamentalist. I mean, he was very out front and thought we ought to do a lot. Of, but Machen... Okay, go ahead. But Machen and this other tradition seems to have been much more standoffish about that. Uh, The Southern Presbyterian idea of the spirituality of the church. And uh, put Schaefer in that paradigm somewhere because he seems to have been on a trajectory from the separatist, let's don't... Make much involvement politically to becoming in the late 60s and then the 70s very actively engaged in what was then called, I guess we still can call it the new religious right in America. In some ways, one of the major shapers of that. Yeah, that, that, that last point you
0: made, let me start there and work back. Uh, all the things that, that we've talked about thus far are things, are, are, are ways in which Schaefer was influential amongst. Um, one group of evangelicals, but later in life he became influential amongst those who would become political activists in in the Christian right. So Schaefer this is one of the things that makes him so significant in 20th century evangelicalism, is that he was equally influential amongst those who would become uh, Christian scholars, either on a professional or even on a popular level, taking things of the mind very, very seriously. And he was also just as influential amongst those who would end up part of the the Christian right political activist sort of movement. And those two constituencies, there's a lot of tension between those two. Anyone who has studied at a Christian college with a a Christian scholar who who is a little bit leery of the way that uh, Christian right political activists get involved in politics has experienced that sort of tension, yet both of those groups look to Schaefer uh, in, in significant and different ways. And one of the ways that you can look at Schaeffer's life is that he started out as a as a fundamentalist militantly defending the faith, and then he went through a period a middle period in his life where he was an engaged evangelical uh and uh very apolitical but very serious about how the christian faith um can be integrated with with serious intellectual and even artistic sorts of of things. And then a later period in life where he becomes once again a kind of uh, militant sort of activist in a different way. So his, in some ways, it, I'm not completely comfortable with this, but in some ways you can see his, his fundamentalist beginnings coming back to the fore at the end of his life, where he was first of all defending the faith again, but also then uh, moving into a, a very activist sort of political strain with a with a, a tinge of that fundamentalist uh, mm-hmm. m- militant
1: militancy um, mm-hmm. going on. Would speak for Jerry Falwell exactly. and uh, people like that. Uh. Uh, you know, I'm involved in a group called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and we, we deal with a lot of theological issues that separate Evangelicals and Catholics. But this movement, in a way, got started um, in what I've called the ecumenism of the trenches, on issues like sanctity of life and so forth. And in some ways, Schafer is the godfather of that kind of evangelical involvement, particularly on sanctity of life. I'm thinking about the film series he did with C. Everett Koop and so forth, um, say a little bit about how he got involved with that issue and became such an icon for so many people in the culture.
0: In nineteen by nineteen seventy four, Schaefer had been lecturing. <coughs> uh, Frequently, In fact, it was just an unbelievably hectic sort of schedule from about 1964 when he started doing lectures on college campuses in America to 1974. And and his books, as you mentioned, the the first three books, the trilogy had come out. He had written several more books by that time, and he was was pretty much exhausted. And and in 1974, he went to the Luzon Congress on Evangelism in Luzon, Switzerland, which was, of course, a huge event in in evangelical life for kind of transatlantic evangelicalism. And uh, he came back from that Congress, and he was at one of the lowest points that um, people had ever seen him. And Schaefer was given to periods of of darkness. Uh, almost everyone who knew him and or lived at Labrie for a long period of time. Uh, talk about these periods. It got kind of, almost a black period going to, I mean, I, probably it was some sort of depression, but, uh, he came back from that Congress and he had been fighting, he had, he had begun to fight the, the, the inerrancy wars of the 1970s at that Congress and he was very concerned that evangelicalism was going to go the way of, of mainline Protestantism. It was going to lurch off into liberal, uh, liberal theology if it didn't hold a line at inerrancy. So he came back from the Luzon Congress in 1974, back to Brie, and he and Edith had actually moved out of the main chalet, they had moved into a smaller chalet that was going to be their retirement quarters, and they were planning to scale down their activities and move into a kind of semi-retirement. <clears throat> Schaefer's son, Frankie, at that time, now known as Frank, uh, Frankie had other ideas. Frankie was 22 years old, and he was a, a budding and talented artist interested in filmmaking, and um, Frankie took it upon himself to do two things. One, he he saw his father and wanted to revive his career. He didn't think his dad was done yet. And he tells this story himself. Now, I got this story from other people, and then it was reinforced in his own autobiography, which just came out last year. (coughs) He basically decided that he was going to take control of his father's career, and he got this idea for the first film, How Should We Then Live?, and got Schaefer interested in that. And began to to Frankie began to um, impress upon his father the need for getting involved politically in what later on we would come to call the, the culture wars, and uh, Frankie was very interested in the issue of of abortion and began to get his father into it. Now What we have to remember is that in 1974, there weren't very many Evangelical Protestants who were engaged in the issue of abortion. Yeah, in fact, government. many Evangelicals thought this was a Catholic issue. We exactly. don't need to get
1: involved in it. And of course, R. V. Wade was 73, and the Southern Baptist Convention actually passed a resolution more or less affirming R. V. Wade uh, with some very minor qualifications. And it's sort of hard to think today the SBC would be pro-choice or pro-abortion, whatever we say, uh, but in fact, that was the case. And Schaefer galvanized uh, not just Southern Baptists, but m- major sectors in our, our country through the film series, through his writings. And in some ways, I think, has to be seen uh, as the person who really made this an issue that uh, still is with us today. Absolutely. The first film was an attempt
0: to do a kind of a sweeping documentary on, on um, the Schaefer argument from Aquinas to to Kierkegaard, or uh, Aquinas to uh, Bart, or something like that. Uh, but it also it, part of that uh, what was the whole uh, Roe v. Wade uh, issue and the issue of abortion. The second film was was on abortion. Whatever happened to the human race? This is one he did with C. Everett Koop, and and that uh, when that film came out in the late '70s. Uh, it became a teaching tool that churches used. Uh, fundamentalist and evangelical churches began to use, and that began to draw evangelicals into the uh, pro-life movement and began to galvanize evangelicals for political action. And you can talk to many conservative Southern Baptists, Independent Baptists, Northern evangelical pastors who will talk about using that film in their churches and and, and how it shaped them. So, so Schaefer very much was, I would say the leading figure in, in bringing evangelicals into the pro-life movement.
1: You mentioned Frank Schaeffer's uh, book, Crazy for God, his autobiography, in which he says some very scurrilous things about both his father and his mother and the whole Labrie experiment. Um, uh, Oz Guinness has said, no critic or enemy of Francis Schaeffer has done more damage to his life's work than his son Frank. What do you think about that? Well,
0: uh, I think it's... Only slightly overstated. <laughs> um, Frank or Frankie, as he used to be known, uh, has uh, has always uh, been given to making his argument in the most extreme ways. In the 1980s, uh, he in the 1980s there was nobody more critical, in uh, criticals a charitable word to use, of evangelicals than Frankie was. Evangelicals were not conservative enough for Frankie in the 1980s. Well, now Frankie's had a major transformation in his life over the past 25 years, and um, evangelicals are way too conservative uh, for for Frankie. And so he, he basically sees his father and himself because he was one of the driving forces in his father's later career as being responsible for the development of the Christian right which Frankie today dislikes very deeply and so he's he Frankie also has a tendency to in all of his books to be working out his own sort of life and so when you read his books it's almost like you're you're reading his own catharsis and i think he in some ways feels guilty today about some of the things he did in the in the 80s and is now critiquing his own his own mm-hmm. life but in the process he has this tendency. I don't understand it quite uh, to to want to tell the worst stories about his family. He did this first in fiction, and he had three yeah. novels where he basically outed the worst sort of uh, idiosyncrasies of what I call evangelicalism's first family, yeah. maybe second family if you count Billy Graham. And uh, mm-hmm. um, but now he's done it in, a, in an autobiography, and, and uh, yeah, it is it is interesting in in some ways. Uh, to, to read. One of the
1: crit- criticisms I've, re- I've re- read about Crazy for God is the fact that uh, he says all this, airs all this dirty linen and talks about the most intimate things in the most garish ways. Um, his mother is still alive, I think. Edith is still living, uh, not uh, very communicative anymore. Uh, but it, it, it borders a little bit on kind of disrespect maybe or dishonor uh, to a lot of people who knew them and uh, clearly, flawed people as well as uh, fantastic people in so many ways. So, um, we're going to wrap this up, but say a little bit about Schaefer and uh, kind of how we should think about him today. I want to say, when I was reading your book, which is a great book, I want to recommend everybody read Francis Schaefer and the Shaping of Evangelical. It's the best biography of Francis Schaefer, hands down, that's been done so far. And it's overall, I think, as you said, a very appreciative. Biography, though critical. And I found the critical part uh, getting stronger the more I read. It's stronger near the end. Uh, It's stronger when Schaefer gets more involved in the political culture wars and so forth. Uh, I wonder, uh, does that in part reflect... Uh, some of your own analysis of Schaefer. You like the Schaefer of brie and the hospitality, and maybe even the early apologetic stuff. But when he kind of gets uh, in into the the muck and mire of the, of the public fray, he becomes a less attractive figure. Is that is that a fair analysis?
0: It, it is, uh, and and I'll answer it in two ways. Part of it is, uh, you know, I'm an academic, so I li- I like the intellectual side of Schaefer, and. Um, What happens, of course, in in any movement that moves from ideas to politics is that the ideas have to get rounded off, simplified, and in the view of many of us, oversimplified, and and a lot gets lost in that. The richness, the depth, the context, the nuance, the irony, the tension, those things all have to go out the window if you're going to march in the streets and say, "This, this is what needs to be done. So, so in one, in some ways, it is you know that that I'm an academic and and um, I, I tend to to think I tend to value highly uh, thinking seriously about how we are to be Christians in our daily walk, but also in the way we think about things. And I think Schaefer commended was was commendable for giving us a model for doing that. Even though I, I wouldn't buy the details of his argument, but he gave us a model for how to intellectually engage the world. But there's another way of, of, of arguing it also, and that is that part of Schaeffer's getting involved politics, uh, in politics, when he came back into the American scene, starting in the mid '60s, but really in the late '70s when he started getting involved in this, was that he he bought into an idea that I think is is uh, theologically problematic, and it's the idea that somehow America holds a special place. Um, in God's view that America was um, a Christian nation not just in the sense of it of the values of Christianity I mean there's a sense in which I think you can make the argument America of course was shaped tremendously by uh, by the Christian faith the morality of the Judeo-Christian view and, and, and all of those sorts of things but it's it's often a short step in public life from that to arguing a sort of Christian America view that I think blurs the distinction between a a faith and a theology that stands transcendent above all earthly nations and political ideologies and so forth and I think Schaefer didn't do that as as egregiously as some who would come later, but he was he came close to that in some of his later books. And uh, I think that was unfortunate because I think much of what he did in that middle period was very prophetic and standing, you know, holding the Christian faith over uh, and and seeing God as standing in judgment over all the pretensions of humankind. And he was leaning more at the end of his life toward appropriating God for a political cause. And in some ways that that can be problematic and for me troubling. So... Mm -hmm. Um, And he does this in his book, um, uh, Christian Manifesto, especially, and uh, the argument there uh, of America being founded on a Christian base, I think, is uh, a little, is quite oversimplified. I think he tended to view the Christian founding fathers in ways that um, perhaps are uh, difficult and and problematic. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. One of his later books, which seems to pull in another direction, was called uh, The Mark of the Christian. It's one of my favorite Schaefer books. Um, and it's really about, uh, you know, the love commandment of Jesus. And he quotes John 13, verse 36, uh, where Jesus says that, uh, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And it, it's kind of a confessional book. He's looking back over his life, some of the many battles and scars that. Uh, he knows, and there's a, a feeling of regretfulness about that, of uh, almost confession and repentance for it, uh, and calling on a younger generation of evangelicals to be careful not only what they believe and what they say and how they act, uh, but also how they are perceived, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, that's also very important. We can only control that to a certain extent, but Schaefer was aware that. What other people think about us when they see how we live and how we how we talk and act in the world is going to influence the way they think about the gospel we proclaim, and to me, that's a very much needed word in our present context today. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that.
0: Well, yeah, it, it, for for Schaefer, the final apologetic for the Christian faith was love, and again, Edith figures central in, in this. Uh, Schaefer loved to tell stories about young people who came to Labrie and, and uh, after uh, hearing his arguments for the Christian faith became Christians. And when he told these stories, it sounded like uh, they had kind of been argued into the kingdom of God. But when you talk to some of these people, some of them will tell that story, but others will say, I was just blown away by the love. I'd never seen people accept people where they are like the Schaffers did. And so it was a combination of... a, a a compelling reasonable argument for the Christian faith but set in a context of Christian hospitality and the, and the love of Christ extended to people wherever they may be at that time uh, one of um, those who was converted at Labrie who is now a fine theologian in his own right uh, likes to say that Labrie became in the words of sociologist Peter Berger a structure of plausibility for the Christian faith and the plausibility factor was that the, the love and hospitality of Labri made the argument attractive, and I think sometimes, sometimes not always, but sometimes Schaefer actually minimized and and didn't even recognize the extent to which the hospitality was working in conjunction with his argument and with his uh, his kind of spoken logical sort of apologetic to actually bring people in. But in Mark of a Christian, that's the point he was making that in the final analysis. Uh, And I think he was hearkening back to his days as an early fundamentalist when the fundamentalist movement he was part of, Carl McIntyre and others, did not show much Christian love, even for other Christian brothers and sisters. And so I think he was saying uh, that the final apologetic is love. And as Christians, whatever we say and whatever we argue, we we better have the mark of a Christian uh, in our lives.
1: Well, John 1.14 is my favorite verse in the Bible. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And those are the twin virtues, I think, of the Christian life that we want to seek to model ourselves. I've been talking with Dr. Barry Hankins, professor of history at Baylor University, who's written a fascinating biography, Francis Schaeffer and the Shaping of Evangelical America. Thanks, Barry, for being with us here at Beeson today. It's been good to be here. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, Beesondivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson
1: Podcast.